Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Shalom, everybody. Welcome to the Land of Israel Fellowship. Baruch haba, bruchim habayim. It's daylight savings time in the West, and Israel is on a different schedule. And every week, there's like a new challenge that comes up. A wedding that's off time, and corona, and recordings, and constant nothing here is simple everything is always a challenge but thank god we're here together just seeing all of your beautiful faces i can't tell you it literally like lights up my life i'm so happy we have this opportunity to be together again today and you know today it's a it's just i we're completing the entire book of exodus together you know it's the first of nisan it's the first day of the biblical new year Passover is right around the corner. It's like we're marching towards redemption. And I think back to about this time a year ago. And in Israel, we were in the middle of our first real lockdown. And we had never been locked down before in Corona. And we didn't really know what to do. We were locked down on our farm. We had a generator. We didn't know how bad things were going to get. And in the middle of the lockdown, Israel ran out of eggs. I don't know if you guys heard about that around the world, but in Israel, it was top of the headlines. Jews without eggs on Passover is an impossibility. <laughs> it was a national crisis. No one knew what to do. You think Netanyahu worked hard to bring vaccines to Israel. All of Israel's leaders were working on figuring out how to bring eggs to Israel for Passover. It was insane. And because we have like a small little flock of chickens, I went to my brothers and I went to my friends' homes that needed eggs and I shared with them whatever we could. And it was my favorite memory of the first lockdown. I was like the egg Santa Claus in Israel, hopping around people's houses and bringing them eggs out of nowhere. They were the joy that my chickens brought to the Jewish people before Passover. They must have a place in the world to come because of the amount of happiness that my chickens brought when there was no eggs in Israel. It was absolutely astounding. I might as well have brought them like a box of gold it was like eggs for Passover. There were no eggs. <laughs> and, you know, it's, you know, in some ways we're in like, it's a new year. We're like heading now to a new cycle of the biblical feasts of Passover is where it all begins. Spring is in the air. And I'm like, ugh, I try to think back like, okay, where was I last year? Just a few months before that, it was like life before Corona. And I can hardly relate to that life anymore. It, that feels so far away from me now. We, it seems like distant. I don't know. We've been through so much. It's like political shifts and lockdowns and elections and family pressures and pandemics. And the fact that I can hardly identify with who I was before this pandemic, which was just a little bit more than a year ago, it means that on some level, like if you feel the same way, we're changed people. We're different. We have grown in the last year. And you know, I, I, I'd like to believe that we're stronger now, but it feels like we're being changed without really even understanding what we're being changed into. And that's why I found the alignment and the Torah that we learn here in this fellowship. It's been like um, a life-saving reality for me that in the tidal waves of the world that are just carrying us in different directions that we can't even fully grasp yet, I feel like preparing for these sessions together and praying together and learning them together. It's just been, an, it's been a tree of life that I've been able to grasp on. And I'm just, I'm enthralled. We finished all of the book of Genesis. 
We finished all of the book of Exodus. We're like marching through the entire Torah. Representatives from 40 different nations all come together. It's just so marvelous. And through all this chaos and through all of our mistakes and the technical challenges and the emails and the daylight savings times, it's like we keep on showing up every week, dedicating our time, setting our week off with the light from Israel, with the light from Shabbat, with the light from the Torah, just shining it into our lives, aligning ourselves with our best selves, thinking about our the higher things in life, you know, and just in praying to make those values and those ideals our guides. It's like, how could we have lived through this without this? It's like the perfect medicine God sent each and every one of us to somehow figure out how to traverse through these, you know, uncharted territories together. And how marvelous that we finished the book of Exodus and we're about to celebrate Passover together. It's like, wow. And, you know, Exodus is, it's arguably, it's like the climax. It's the highlight of the Torah. And I'm just, I don't know, I just want to thank all of you for joining us here, that we've been able to walk this out together. You've made um, my life, and I know that in some ways, like everyone's life somehow has contributed to everyone. And we've just all been such a, such a blessing for each other. And so I just want to start off today with, um, with a tefillah. Hashem, thank you for this fellowship. Thank you for these friends. Thank you for this time. Thank you for bringing us together here today. It's like we're completing another book in your Torah. We've reached another door and we are walking through it together with you. Thank you for guiding us on this faith journey together. Thank you for connecting us to the land of Israel together. Thank you for drawing us together and calling us to learn your ways and walk in your light. Israel created a place in the center of their camp for you. And we want to create a space in the center of our hearts for you to dwell in our lives. Bless the families in this fellowship and shine your light into their lives. Look at what we've built together in your mountains. Look at what we've built together all around the world with this incredible fellowship. Bless them as they have blessed us in these times. Dwell in our hearts, dwell in our homes, bless our work, and bless who we love. Amen. Okay, there's so much that I want to share today, but I just want to start by bringing you here to the mountains of Judea, to the Arugot farm. You know, our fellowship has completed now the entire structure of our educational retreat center. You know, one day we're all gonna get there together. We're all gonna have time in Israel where we're not just learning online, but we're learning in person. We're praying in person. We're planting in person. It's all gonna happen. It's all in the works. But in the meantime, this is the closest that I can get to bringing you all the way to these mountains. And I just can't help but feel as though Hashem is shining his light on us. It's like as we completed erecting the structure of our building is the same time we're learning about the completion and erecting the tabernacle. And it's all happening on the same day today, on the first of the month of Nisan. It's like, wow, that's what it says in the Torah. It's happening right now. It's happening before our eyes. All of us are building our tabernacles together. And the spice carts have just followed us from for the first gathering as we finished the roof of our house of prayer to now as we've erected the tabernacle in the Torah, we've now like erected the structure of our building. And it's like these spice carts just continue to guide us on our way. And so here's just a short clip from the roof of our center that will soon be a place where our fellowship will gather in the land of Israel live in person. That will be such a great day. But uh, here we go outside to the mountains of Judea for this short little clip. All right, so here we are. It's Thursday morning and the cement trucks have finally arrived. They're right here behind me. And as you can see, the giant crane is going up 
and we're about to finish the final roof, finishing the outside structure of our educational center. This is the one we just did a couple of weeks ago, and as you can see, we're inside now, and all is well. I'm gonna go to the top of the roof and see what's going on up there. All right, so now I've got Scott here. This is kind of the structures that are here. That's what's gonna hold up the cement roof of all of these studio suites for all of our people. I'm climbing up the, the ladder here now to get to the top and let's see what goes on once we get up here. All right, we're on top of the roof here and it's starting to work now. And I can't tell you, but the second roof is more beautiful than the first one. It's hard to explain because the view from up here Judean mountains and the Judean desert and the Dead Sea behind me here. Now, the truth is not only is the Dead Sea here, but you can see all the way to Masada from up here. And I think about that, then you know Masada's the most visited tourist attraction in all of Israel. Now the Kotel is the most visited, but to pay a fee to go into an archaeological site or a tourist place, Masada is number one. And what happens in Masada is people come from all around the world to see the way the Jews lived over 2,000 years ago during the Roman occupation. And I think about this monument, this living monument that we're building here, this educational center that will be opened up to Jews from Israel and Jews from outside of Israel and non-Jews from every country that want to come and experience the magic of King David in these mountains. And I just think that maybe 2,000 years from now, People will come from all over the world to visit the Arugot farm and see all that we've built as people from around the world came and gave of their time and gave of their money to build this place in the mountains of Judea as the Jewish people have returned to the land of Israel. It is in some ways to touch into the eternal story of Israel, of Netzach Israel, And what we're building here will be an everlasting monument. You know, I, I made that video on Thursday, and today they took all of those metal support beams that are there away, and they took away all of the wood that was holding it up, and the concrete wall is totally done now, and our whole structure now is complete. It's like, are you kidding me? Today is the first day of Nisan, the exact day that the tabernacle's walls were erected. It says it there in scripture. We're going to learn it in just a second. The exact day that our fellowship is meeting to learn together about that exact event of building the tabernacle together. What? That's just beyond chance. The construction workers in Corona over the last year, I've learned that there are things that are, they just happen in their own time. I have very little control over when things happen. And all of a sudden I blink twice and I look around and they're happening in the most marvelous timing, in the most unbelievable ways. I just, I can't help but feel as though we're being guided through this incredible storm in perfect timing together. And we're just so fortunate to know that we're building a place for all people from all backgrounds, from every believer around the world and from non-believers around the world to come to the mountains of Judea, to the mountains of King David and to experience God's spirit, a place for God's love, a place for God's unity to be expressed. 
I mean, we're not just meeting here to learn together, but through our learning, we're building and restoring the land of Israel. And through our learning, we're building and restoring our lives. I just marvel at the wonder of prophecy that's unfolding and somehow to have a hand in it. And somehow I feel like we're on the, the, the tip of the spear of such a move at the edge of the Judean mountains, collecting these amazing souls from the ends of the earth. Like, wow, it's like magical. And we're just the most fortunate people in the world. And so, with that introduction, let's learn some Torah together. Um, I just, um, I want to start off the, uh, uh, the fellowship with Arya Bramowitz. I was away for Shabbat, celebrating the first Shabbat, Sheva Brachot, the first Shabbat of Tehillah's brother's married life. That's a huge celebration. It's also what caused the mistake last week and the misfortune and the confusion again. I'm so sorry about that. But um, usually Arya and I learn together over Shabbat, and this week I missed that. So I'm really excited to hear what he has to say as almost always his message stays with me long after our fellowship gatherings. And I hope that this will be a, a good introduction to where we're going. So without further ado, here's Ari. Shalom, my friends. We find ourselves in a very exciting and interesting period of time, not coincidentally, both in world history and in our journey through the Torah and the Hebrew calendar. Two weeks ago, we celebrated the holiday of Purim and two weeks from now, we celebrate the holiday of Passover. We're right in the middle. Now, both are holidays of redemption, but very different kinds. And in some ways, they seem like opposites. Purim is a deep and mystical redemption, one in which a series of seeming coincidences lead to the reversal of the decree of a Holocaust against the Jewish people, men, women, and children. They seem like coincidences. The queen doesn't appear at the feast. The king kills the queen and needs a new queen. He falls in love with Esther. Mordechai overhears a plot against the king, etc., etc. It appears to be a series of happenstances and coincidences, but we know better. We know there's no such thing as a coincidence. That's why we wear masks on Purim, to convey our recognition that God uses nature to appear like coincidence in his orchestration of everything to bring about the redemption of Israel and the redemption of the world. But the redemption of Purim is as hidden as it gets. God's name is not even mentioned, not even once in the entire Megillah. And now we're well on our way to Pesach, to Passover, where we'll be celebrating another redemption, but a redemption that in many ways could not be more different as opposed to the hidden redemption of Purim, Passover is as revealed a redemption as the human mind can imagine. Egypt, the world's greatest superpower, is brought to its knees by ten nature-defying plagues that even Pharaoh's sorcerers admit very early on are done by none other than the finger of God. The whole world hears of the awesome and unimaginable parting of the sea and the deliverance of Israel from being slaves to Pharaoh, to being the chosen servants of the one true God, creator of heaven and earth. Yet despite the fact that the entire redemption was led by Moses from the beginning to the end, Moshe's name is not even mentioned, not even once in the entire Haggadah. And so this period, we experience the entire range of redemption from the hidden to the revealed. And interestingly, at the same time, in the cycle of the Torah reading, we're finishing the book of Shemot, Exodus, and graduating to the book of Vayikra, 
Leviticus. And with your permission, moving forward, I'm not going to refer to it as Leviticus, but by Vayikra. I don't like the Latin name so much. It's always rubbed me the wrong way. It sounds so Latin, so abstract. And some people perceive it that way. In my youth, I remember feeling a little disappointed when we uh, arrived at Vayikra, because it felt like all the exciting stories about the genesis of the world, Noah, the flood, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the tribes, slavery, exodus, it's over. And now we're getting into the nitty gritty details of sacrifices and laws. But now, at this stage in my life and in my Torah journey, I'm really excited for us to dive into this together and swim through these holy waters because within these details are hiding the most wondrous mysteries and deepest secrets to serving God and coming close to Him. And together we can reach new heights and greater depths. Because that's what we're here for together. We're here to do something, to do something real. We're here to, we're here to, to build something, not only spiritually, but physically as well. And I believe that is one of the reasons that Hashem has continued to bless us in this endeavor. Because we have not just come together to be, but we have come together to build. Rabbi Sachs brilliantly points out that the Parsha begins with the words that contain the, contain the deepest fixing of the sin of the golden calf, which immediately preceded it. The first verse, Exodus 35, uh, verse 1. Vayakel Moshe et kol adat b'nei Yisrael vayomer lehem. And Moses gathered, Vayakel, and Moses gathered all the congregation of the people of Israel together and said to them, These are the words which the Lord has commanded that you should do them. And he proceeds to mention the Sabbath and immediately delve into the details of the construction of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle. And why is this such a deep fixing? Because as Rabbi Sachs pointed out, the same word, Vayakel, is used in the construction of the golden calf. In Exodus chapter 32, verse 1, it says, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they assembled, Vayakel, they assembled around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. The same word that is used for Moses assembling the people to build a dwelling for the divine presence in the world was used to describe the people assembling together to create the exact opposite. An idol, a graven image, a substitute for God. The word vayakel has at its root kehilah, which is a type of community or gathering of people. Rabbi Sachs points out that in a kehilah, while the members can be very different from each other, they're assembled together for a collective undertaking, which involved the unique contribution of each and every member. And that is the brilliance that Moshe understood under divine guidance, that the real way to bring together a fractured, broken nation is to build something great together, something meaningful, something real. That is what we are building with this fellowship. And by extension, that is what we're building on our mountain here on the Judean frontier. We have all come together in this fellowship as a very diverse group of people from different backgrounds, different worldviews, different faiths, so many different types of Jews and non-Jews. There are many among us who find themselves in the no man's land of faith in which they can't even seem to find a box or a category into which they belong. Nonetheless, as different as we all are, in many ways, we are building something here, something real. 
We're building a community of people who are courageous enough and humble enough and thirsty enough to put aside that which divides us in favor of that deeper truth which unites us, that authentic and powerful love for God and desire to serve Him. Sometimes it may not even be clear to us exactly what we are building. Perhaps it's being revealed to us over time. But I believe that deep down we all feel that we are indeed building something historic and beautiful here together. Because we all know that our primary purpose in this world, in this life, is to build a home for the Divine Presence, a dwelling for the Divine Presence in the world. And while both the mobile tabernacle and the fixed temple were indeed physical structures, Hashem tells us in Exodus, in Shemot 25, 8, And they will create for me a sanctuary, and I will dwell within them. Not just within it, not just within the building, not just within the structure, but within them, within their hearts. That is what we're building in this fellowship, and that's what we're building on this holy mountain in Judea. It was among these mountains that King David composed so many of the Psalms. It was within these hills that this young, faithful shepherd taught the world how to pray. And with God's help and miracles, we've built not only this fellowship, but we're in the final stretch of building a physical manifestation of that same mission, a spiritual center to connect to the God of Israel through the land of Israel, through the nation of Israel, and through the Torah of Israel in a way that is only possible to do in the hills of Judea. For while the first seven years of King David's kingdom was over those Judean mountains in Hebron, the last 33 years was over those Judean mountains in Jerusalem. What starts in Judea ends in Jerusalem. And this fellowship is at the core of everything. Hashem, we have come together before you from different backgrounds, perspectives, and faiths, brought together by the one mission, to bring your presence and your light into the world. Please use us in building, not only within our own hearts, but physically within the world, a sanctuary within which your presence can dwell and through which you can shine your light of love and healing and redemption to all of mankind. And as we venture forth from the hidden redemption of Purim, allow us all to experience the unimaginably powerful and revealed redemption this coming Passover, for which we have been yearning and praying since the beginning of time. Please, Hashem, bless us as we continue to build our community in this fellowship. Bless us as we continue to build this spiritual center here in Judea. And above all, Bless us to be a part, however small, in the building of the Beit HaMikdash for you on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. Thank you, Jeremy, and thank you, my beloved friends. I look forward to seeing you next week when Bezrat Hashem, I will be sitting in Jeremy's seat as he has graciously given me the opportunity and the privilege to share the honor of leading the fellowship for the beginning of Sefer Vayikra. We've been speaking and sharing and thinking and praying about ways to grow and evolve as a fellowship and as a community. And sharing these different roles is just many of the different ways that we're talking about in which we can come together and expand this great and holy mission we're on together. So, as always, please reach out with your thoughts and your questions. And uh, 
Love and blessings to all of you from here in Judea. Shalom, shalom. Thank you, Ari. I love that message. Can you see how excited we are? <laughs> it's like the building is going up and the fellowship is growing. It's like, you know, there's a lot of chaos on the outside. I try not to watch the news. The news is just depressing. But if you don't pay attention to the news and you just look at what's happening at our fellowship, because in some of it's like, it's the spiritual underpinnings of everything that's happening. It's like God's plan is unfolding a little bit like Purim, a little bit concealed, only to then finally be revealed. But those that have the eyes to see the concealed already now, they can't help but hold back the excitement about what we're taking part in. And I'm also really excited to see the next fellowship and see how Ari leads the show here. I'm really, really excited about that. So as I have this opportunity onward into the Torah, here we go. So um, Genesis and Exodus, you know, although they're divided into two books, um, the way that I see it, they're really two halves of the same whole. And what started in the Garden of Eden was completed in the tabernacle. And there's only two stories that detail the process of creation in the Torah. God's creation of the universe. It's like in all of the details. First he created this, and then he created that. And then the Israelites' creation of the tabernacle. There's nothing else like it in the Torah. And the story of creation is the transformation from tohu vavohu to order. The ancient Greeks called it from chaos to cosmos. And in Genesis, like from the dark abyss, the cosmos emerged, the perfectly aligned solar systems and the delicate balance of life. It's like from absolute tohu vavohu, from the chaos came cosmos. And in Exodus, we go from the darkness of slavery to the light of freedom. And just as God split the waters on the second day of creation, creating heavens above and the waters below, God split the waters at the Red Sea and gave birth to the nation of Israel. But really only in the last century can we really appreciate the detail and the extraordinary precision and mathematical constants that govern creation. I mean, scientists say that if any of them had been slightly different, the universe wouldn't have been able to have been created. They wouldn't have been able to form into stars and planets and earth and life wouldn't have ever been possible. And it's as if the tabernacle in all of its precision and details is like a microcosmos, a symbolic representation of the universe itself. But even more than that, what was lost in Eden by Adam and Eve's fall was fixed by the tabernacle. After the sin in Eden, it's like the harmony between God and man and man and nature was lost. And now, once again, God was able to dwell in our midst. It's like in the beginning of Genesis, God created the world and made a place for man to dwell in. And here, finally, at the end of Exodus, Man in his world created a place for God to dwell in. And Genesis is the story of you know, great men and women, individuals who created an individual path and models. They're models for us of how to live with God, how to live with his guidance in our lives, how to walk in his light. And now in Exodus, it's like we're taking up this mission to a whole new level. It's from individuals and families, we transition into a nation. And that's a whole other ballgame. And the nation now is tasked not only with becoming a godly nation, but a nation that's so powerful that it will somehow bring the light to all the nations of the world. And, you know, the life of one person dedicated to God, that's complicated enough. 
To raise a godly family, that's even more complicated. To raise a godly nation, to build an entire society, a society that will be powerful enough to shift the course of world history, that's, that's incredible. But that's exactly what happened. And it all culminates and starts right here at the end of the book of Exodus. And you know, now at the end of Exodus, it's like we arrive at the destination. It's like all of this world was created that man and God would be able to dwell together. And if the Torah is a map and X marks the spot on this spiritual map, then X is somehow like we've brought God into our lives. We've brought his presence at the center of our being. That's like the goal of all of the Torah is just guiding us to that place. And all of the Torah up until now, it's like, you know, God kind of comes and goes, at least in our perception. You know, he gives Abraham a calling and he says, lech lecha, go forth for to yourself. But then he sort of leaves and Abraham is on his own and has to struggle in that walk. And he, he, he leaves Israel in Egypt and they become slaves and he appears again and redeems them through miracles and miracles come and miracles go and God is sometimes seeable and sometimes not as much. But here, Exodus ends off with the people creating a tabernacle and the people transform their reality from a life of miracles where God appears ever so often and saves them into a life where God's presence is a constant epiphany, a constant reality in the center of their camp, guiding them on their journey in the desert toward the land of Israel. It's a totally new reality that is a mirror of what will be in the Messianic era. It's like all of this is really a map towards the very end. Now, God becomes the guiding principle, a constant reality in the heart of the lives. And it's symbolized by the tabernacle in the center of the camp. And that is what guides the nation of Israel for the rest of their lives. Look at the last words in the book of Exodus. It's Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 through 38. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of Hashem filled the tabernacle. When the cloud was raised up from the tabernacle, the children of Israel would embark on all their journeys. If the cloud did not rise up, they would not embark until the day it rose up. For the cloud of Hashem would be on the tabernacle by day and fire would be on it at night before the eyes of all of the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. It's all of a sudden the Shekhinah comes and it doesn't go away. God's presence is felt, it's sensed, it's transformational. And it's as if like the light we know to be good in our head. We have this inner voice that's constantly, we're like, we're in a negotiation with it all the time. We know what we should do. We know what's right. We know that what our instincts is telling us to do. And if we break it, we know that we've broken some sort of covenant with ourselves. It's like, what's going on there? We have this idea in our head, but somehow it entered into their heart. It's the ultimate knowledge and wisdom. In Hebrew, we call that knowledge da'at. Isaiah talks about the knowledge of God covering the world like waters cover the sea. It's da'at. It's a specific kind of knowledge. And I think the best way to translate that knowledge in Hebrew is embodied knowledge. What is embodied knowledge? We spoke a little bit about this last week. You know, if you play a musical instrument or you drive a car, you know exactly what embodied knowledge is. You can strum the chords on your guitar and have your mind fully focused on prayer and worship. I mean, you're not even thinking about what your fingers are doing. The guitar, the guitar is just playing. It's just happening. It, your, your body already knows how to do those motions. You know, you're driving a car. 
you're not really thinking. I mean, after years of driving, you're not thinking anymore about pressing the gas or slowing down or moving your hands on the steering wheel. You know, you're driving your car and your mind is free to listen to a good podcast, to sing a song, to think your thoughts, whatever. Your, your actions, they just become automatic. It's embodied knowledge. The knowledge after practicing driving over and over again, that knowledge becomes embodied. That is da'at. And the da'at of Hashem will cover the world like water covers the sea. It's like a new transformation will happen all over the world. Well, that actually happened in the time in the desert where the Shekhinah resided in the heart of the camp of Israel embodied knowledge. See, the Torah and the mitzvot are tools that help us create an embodied knowledge of God. It's like, feel like we have this law, the burden of the law. There's all these ideas of, oh, the curse of the law that we have to follow all the time. It's tools to help us create embodied knowledge. When we give, and we do that over and over again, we just become giving it becomes who we are. It becomes the way of our behavior in the world. And you know that's why religion that focuses on theology, like what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? And what do you believe about that? It's, it's missing the mark. It's when that knowledge enters our hearts and you become a better person, you grow closer to God. When that knowledge enters your being, and you, then you know you're on the right path. It's not as much about the theological beliefs that one holds, but rather is the knowledge of God entering into his heart and he's drawing closer to him. It's just, you know it. You don't need to think about it. <laughs> you, you become a better human being. And one of the primary goals of the tabernacle and the temple service is to demonstrate that through practice, ritual, habit, how to take the lofty ideas and the spirit of the Torah and bring them into our lives to make that knowledge fully a part of our being. And at the end of Exodus, the presence of God stops being an in and out miracles that appear and miracles that go away into a constant in the camp. And from the fall of Adam, the Mishkan, the tabernacle becomes the foundational tikkun, the fixing, the restoration for the building of the world again. And if you look at the Hebrew word for tabernacle, because the word tabernacle in English just doesn't mean anything. It just is a word. But the Hebrew word reveals the essence of what the tabernacle was. Can we get the Hebrew up on the screen? Mishkan is the Hebrew word for tabernacle. Shochen is the verb. And that means to dwell. So the tabernacle is a place of dwelling. Shachen means neighbor. So all of a sudden, it's not like God is some distant reality, disconnected spirit that's away from the world, creating galaxies. He's dwelling like a neighbor right next to you that you can go and encounter. The divine presence, the Shekhinah, it's all the same root. It's God's presence dwelling among us. That is the goal of the tabernacle, that dwelling among us in the camp is only symbolic of dwelling among us in our lives. That's why scripture calls the Mishkan, the tabernacle, the Ohel Moed, the tent of meeting. It says that multiple times in scripture. Sometimes it's called the Mishkan, and sometimes it's called the Ohel Moed, the tent of meeting. Anytime you want to meet, anytime you want to see, you want to have an encounter with God, there's a place you can go. There's a place in Jerusalem where he is Shochen, where he resides, where he dwells, in the Mishkan. That's what the tabernacle represents. And now I want to look at the text a little bit closer and unlock a secret here. 
you know, there's a verse that repeats itself. I think it's 14 times in two chapters in the Parsha. And it says over and over again, as the Lord commanded Moses, as the Lord commanded Moses, Moshe, over and over and over again. It's like every time they complete one of the stages of the building of the tabernacle, the Torah states, it was done as Hashem had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting as Hashem had commanded Moses. He placed the menorah in the tent of meeting opposite of the table as Hashem had commanded Moses. He placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting as Hashem had commanded over and over again. Now, what's happening here, it's like there's nothing like that anywhere else in the Torah where it repeats that phrase over and over again. But there is one other time where that statement is mentioned. And it also has to do with construction. And this unlocks perhaps the goal, the meta goal of the Mishkan. And if we look at the verses, you'll open up to the story of Noah in the book of Genesis in chapters 6 and 7. So can we, here we are. Genesis chapter 6. And Noah did everything just as God had commanded him. Genesis 7, 5. And Noah did all that Hashem had commanded him. And Genesis 7, 16. The animals are going in. were male and female of every living thing. As God had commanded Noah. It's like there's the story of the construction of the tabernacle. If you learn to read the Torah right, it's creating a hyperlink. That story is bringing us right back to the construction of the ark before the flood. Now the first story of human history. It's, it's the first societal story. It's like humanity is growing, not as a family anymore. It's not Cain and Abel. It's not Adam and Eve. There's now a lot of people and society ends in total disaster. A flood comes and destroys their world. And now Israel, not a family, a nation, is embarking on the mission of building a society once again. And for that, you should follow just as Hashem had commanded Moses. That's the underlying theme here. The link between the ark and Noah and the tabernacle, it runs deep. It's not just through that verse, but you can see it in a few times. But if you don't pay attention, you might miss it. But when you look at the ark, Noah's ark, that finally brings Noah to dry land and accomplishes its mission, the original goal of saving humanity from the coming flood, look at Genesis chapter 8, verse 13. In the first month, on the first of the month, on the first day of Nisan, the waters dried from upon the earth. Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground had dried. The first month is Nisan, and the first day of the first month is in some ways the beginning of the year. Today, right now, is the Hebrew calendar, is the first day of the month of Nisan. And today is the first day that it's, and look now in scripture, when was the tabernacle erected? Exodus chapter 40, verse 17. It was in the first month of the second year, on the first of the month, that the tabernacle was erected. On the first month, on the first of the month of Nisan. Now, here we see something here. The Mishkan here is coming to protect us from the coming flood. You're about to build a society. This is your ark. This is your guide. Society will not be sustainable if we don't have this Mishkan. Look at what happens next. There's one more word that continuously appears in the story of the Mishkan. And that word is heart, lev. 
Scripture says that people's hearts were lifted up and inspired. People that had wisdom and heart came to build. Specifically, the women were described as having a wise heart. Look at these verses. Exodus chapter 35, verse 10. Here's what it says. Every wise-hearted person among your, you shall come and make everything that Hashem has commanded. 3521. Every man whose heart inspired him came, and everyone whose spirit motivated him brought portions of Hashem for the work of the tent of meeting. Exodus 35, 25, every wise-hearted woman spun her hands and they brought the, the yarn of turquoise, purple, and scarlet wool and linen. Those are just a few of the verses. The portion goes on and on about people's hearts over and over again. And it makes sense that to build a place for God to dwell, it would need our hearts telling us this is not just about dwelling in the camps. This is all about a service of the heart. It's more than ritual and sacrifice or obedience. God desires our hearts. That's so obvious. A sincere relationship. And that's the spirit behind all the details, all the measurements and laws of the Mishkan is the heart that's behind it. But I think also here the word heart in the tabernacle is bringing us back to the first time the word heart is mentioned in the Torah. And again, it takes us right back to the story of Noah and the flood. The prelude to the flood, this is what it says right before the story. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Hashem saw the wickedness of man was great upon the earth, and that every product of the thoughts of his heart was evil only. But Noah found grace in the eyes of God. In the first stories of Genesis, two things happen. Man and women are banished from the Garden of Eden and can no longer dwell together with God. A society is built and through the corruptions of their hearts are ultimately destroyed. The message underlying the story is that God creates order. He created out of absolute chaos, order. Human beings take the order of this world and they create chaos. It's only when human beings create their own order, the ark, the tabernacle, with precise and exact obedience to the will of God, following the higher calling of their hearts and not the desires of their hearts. That's beyond their immediate desires. That's the only chance there is for humans to survive. You know, it took about a year to build the tabernacle. And they were asked by Moses to bring a truma, to bring an offering to start the construction. And you see, the Israelites were inspired immediately and they gave beyond measure. And for a year, they were working together on building the tent of meeting. And I read just a beautiful idea pointed out by Jonathan Sachs that, a blessed memory, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, that Ari mentioned just a little bit. And, you know, Rabbi Sachs just passed away this year. So I think Ari and I have both really kind of taking it upon ourselves to learn a little bit of his Torah in this year. But until the making of the tabernacle, everything that occurred to the people of Israel, it happened to them. God acted on their behalf. He liberated them from slavery. He split the sea. He gave them water from a rock, food from heaven. And they were passive. You know, they were like aimless, walking through the desert, just going where they were told to go. And all they did, they squabbled and they complained. But during the year of building, there's no fights recorded, no complaining. They were united by a common mission. Building together brought them together. And it's a society that's living with a purpose beyond satisfying their own needs. A society that's working together to build something together is a society that will flourish. And this process, it transformed this fractured group of complaining slaves into a society worthy of receiving the divine presence among them. 
Israel was transformed. And the Mishkan obviously wasn't only for God, but clearly dedicating themselves to the ultimate good, giving beyond themselves, coming together, brought out the best in them. And Israel as a nation was transformed, not by God's miracles, but by their own efforts. It's like what we do, not what's done for us, changes us. And perhaps that's one of the reasons that Israel was not immediately blessed with natural resources. You know, when people first came to Israel, they said, you know, no oil, no gold, no water. Like, what's so promising about this promised land? It's like Israel had to build the country together. They had to go to like a rugged area where there were thorns and we had to develop drip irrigation because we didn't have enough water. We had to farm the land together. We had to pray for rain together, working and building together, united by a mission and centered around higher values with God in the heart of our camp, built into in, built Israel into the nation that it is. And you know what's the secret of the tabernacle? Well, on a personal level, we talked about the small changes in our lives, in our habits and in our rituals that over time shape our lives, mold our identities and build our character. But on a national level, something else happened. When you think about that year of building the tabernacle after the golden calf, that had to have been a psychologically really hard time. The people of Israel at the height of revelation turned around and built a golden calf, betrayed themselves, betrayed God. And then for one year, God doesn't appear to them. They're commanded by Moses to start building. They generously give. They dedicate themselves with all of their heart. And day after day, week after week, month after month, there's no inspiration now. There's no feedback from above, nothing. I mean, has God abandoned them? Is God ever going to return? Was the sin so great that not even Moses could help him get out of it? It's like so many doubts had to have been going on. We're like lost in the desert here, building this Mishkan. Where are we going? What are we doing? The fears, but the people of Israel, they just kept on working. They kept on following the exact advice and guidance given to them, just as Hashem had commanded Moses. They were just solid, just consistent over and over again, an entire year. You know, God can do everything, but he's given us the gift of freedom. You know, he's inside us. It's like, although the children of Israel, they're in this environment here. It's like, they're, it's similar to the flood. It's it's a place of tohu. It's a place of chaos, the desert. Nothing settled there. Nothing easy in the desert. There's nothing, there's nothing, there's no civilization there. They're in total chaos, a flood with no water. And the Torah says the chaos is not outside them. The chaos is inside them, inside the human heart. They had to get good on the inside. And through that dedication and commitment and through the freedom that God gave them, they kept on choosing the higher path choosing to stay committed. And it's like, God can't make us moral. Only we can become moral when we freely choose to obey the will of God. When we choose to express our higher desires, when we choose to be the best version of ourselves, God can't choose that for us. That's just not the way he structured our reality. We have the choice to choose the higher path or the lower path. And, you know, and I've studied ancient mythology over time, particularly through Jordan Peterson. 
And, you know, he wrote an amazing book called Maps of Meaning, all these different mythologies of ancient civilizations, just trying to understand like where these societies came from and how we came to think the way that we think. And there's something that's so amazing, so totally different from the Torah, that is different from all ancient mythologies. In myth, and even in science, it's like chaos is patterned into the structure of the universe. The gods fight among themselves, the elements clash, stars crash into each other, just total chaos. Entropy in science says that in the end, it's all just sort of falling apart. And the more time that goes by, the potential for disorder increases. And the Torah says, no, there's one creative will that creates order in this world. Order is natural. Order is only threatened with the chaos primarily by human sin. And there's a moral order to the world. That's what God says when he says, oh, God saw creation and he saw that it was good. In the structure of reality itself, there is good. And when we break the moral order, we open the floodgates for the floods of chaos to hit us. And when God creates the world, he does so effortlessly. There's no battle, there's no clashes. His will is done without any struggle or resistance at all. He speaks and the world comes into being. Every mythological account of creation, some cosmic struggle is happening between gods and clashes that are going on and the ricochets somehow come out and somehow out of this chaos and all this chaos of the wars of the gods, the world is shaped. And the Torah, the message is so clear and consistent. All is well until God creates the first humans and grants us the freedom to choose. We are the first and until today, the only creation endowed with the capacity to like undo creation, to wreak absolute chaos, to destroy the planet, to pollute, to kill, to murder, to, we just, we have the ability to make heaven on earth and we have the ability to choose to actually bring hell onto earth. And in our freedom, we can choose to help others and we can choose to destroy. And in creating the Mishkan, the microcosmos on earth in which God dwells, Israel was making a declaration in their offerings, in their work, day after day, month after month. They are saying we are committed to living by God's will, to choose to act in love as he chose to create in love. Everything he created in the world, he created to flourish. He blessed creation. He saw it was good. So too Israel at that time. Israel could have been resentful and been like, what do I need this life for? Slavery, the injustice, the hypocrisy. What is this world about? There's so much hatred. There's so much chaos. They could have just descended into absolute resentment and given up on being in its totality, to given up on all of its life. And there Israel committed to act for the benefit of the universe as a whole, to be agents of God, to bring blessing to the world, to live as a blessing to this universe and to see the universe as it is with God's goodness radiating from it and to make a space in us for him. What does that mean? It means that when I feel compelled to be selfish, short-sighted, small-minded, I let God's view into my heart. I put the ones I love before myself. I see the big picture. Instead of the lower instincts to take, I live by the higher instinct to give. Instead of the lower instinct to assert power, I relinquish my power to serve God and to serve others. 
It's like the sacrificial service in the tabernacle. It's creating an embodied knowledge of how to give of myself, how to allow his will to become my will, to bless, to love, to grow, to create. The tabernacle symbolized that where God lives is wherever we subordinate our will to his will. When we let his will reign in that space that we create in us, in the center of our camp, we create a space within us where his will reigns supreme. That's when we bring blessing into our lives. And through that blessing, we bless everyone around us. That's the underlying message of the entire book of Exodus and arguably the entire Tanakh, that without God, nations will never be able to create a just society. Without the divine presence symbolized by the tabernacle at the heart of the camp, human beings, when they come together, they will do what human beings have always done. They'll oppress one another. They'll try to control one another. They'll fight with one another. Exodus is in the Torah for nations. Here, the Torah is making a claim about society, not individuals. A person can be a moral person and not be religious. Individuals can be moral without being conventionally religious. You know, they may have grown up in a religious background and now they have good instincts. And you don't need to believe in God to give charity. You don't need to believe in God to save a life, to shelter the homeless. Individuals can act at a very high level without really believing in anything. But what the Torah is doing here, when it hyperlinks us back to Noah, is saying we're not talking about the individual right now. We're talking about human history as a society to teach us now fundamentally humans are a social creature. We form societies, we form groups, we make countries, we have tribes. Societies and individuals do not operate on the same level. Societies of people who are not themselves wicked can perform collective acts of the most insane evil you can imagine. And I think once again, Israel was chosen through the Holocaust to demonstrate this example from the world. When a society rose up with its premier goal to banish God, all of a sudden evil arose in the world that was seemingly unfathomable. And that's the exact claim of the Mishkan at the heart of society. It's like right now, people think that Oh, Corona, it's about the vaccines. It's about the economy. It's about politics. It's about Biden versus Trump and Republicans versus Democrats. Oh, the war raging under the surface of the cancel culture, of the race riots. It's a religious, theological, spiritual war. The West right now, there's forces in it that are trying to like unlodge itself from the Judeo-Christian ethic and values that gave birth to America. They're trying to erase God from the world and see what happens. At the core, they're trying to create a godless society. And as I see it right now, the way the world is going, there's only one hope for the world. And it's this new emerging superpower called Israel. Israel 2.0 is on the rise now. Israel 2.0 is beyond our borders. It's beyond politics. It's from Israel. The knowledge of God will cover the world as waters cover the sea. Israel is going to emerge as a light to all nations because instead of you know, the floods of chaos, the world is going to be flooded with the truth of the moral order of the world. Instead of resentment, jealousy, hatred, 
Israel is going to broadcast a spirit of love that will be a magnet for every believer around the world. Friends, Corona is preparing us for redemption, the next stage in history. And now we have to build just as the Lord commanded Moses. It's like after the sin of the golden calf, Ari said it right. Moses said, Vayakel, gather everyone together. He called on each person in his own heart and inspiration to join the collective mission to build. So many people, they wait for inspiration to act. And here the Torah is teaching us, no act, obey, follow the good. For a full year, they acted with no inspiration, with no feedback, with no results to show themselves they're on the right path. And finally, after a year of work, the tabernacle was filled with the glory of God, inspiration came. They weren't inspired to act. It was their actions that created inspiration. And now each of us in our own lives are being called to action now. Our families need us now, big time. Our friends need us now. Families are being stretched to their limits under the pressure of corona. Our actions today, they're going to influence the futures of everyone around us. Our actions are going to impact the future of Israel as we choose to align with Israel's destiny. And now more than ever, we need to make space in the center of our hearts to bless, to love, to give, to forgive. That's what we need to do now more than anything. Building that in our hearts together will be the greatest blessing we can bring. And I look around the world and listen, there's only one country that as it's becoming more prosperous, is becoming more religious, more God-fearing. Every country, the more rich they become, the more they forget about God. And I am just so proud of Israel. We started off with hearts of stone, a secular country just as Ezekiel envisioned. And he prophesied that that heart of stone would be removed and replaced with a heart of flesh. And we literally see the heart of stone becoming soft again, and the nation of Israel becoming more powerful, more successful. And as we're becoming more successful, Israel is returning more and more to God. It's as if the ancient guidance of the Torah from thousands of years ago has now come full circle. And we're witnessing the transformation of Israel from a fragmented, broken, scattered people into a reborn nation in its promised land. And as God takes the center of our camp, we're going to see Israel prosper and those who love her blessed like nothing we've ever seen before. But now our job is to build, to stay strong. Inspiration will come as we act. We can't wait for inspiration to inspire our actions, but know that our actions will actually bring inspiration. And our building will bring the divine presence back to this land for the whole world to see. That's the promise. That's our aim. And to keep our prayers aimed in our hearts toward Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem is the center of our camp, the heart of all of us. It's where God is destined to return to. So be blessed, my dear friends. Soon enough, we're going to meet all of us here together in Judea. It's going to be a marvelous time. That is really in the works. But until then, know that we love you and know that you are blessed from Zion. Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmerecha. Ya'er Adonai panav elecha v'yichonecha. Isa Adonai panav elecha v'yasem lecha shalom.
Shalom, my friends. I'll see you again soon. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.